0: When are we going to talk about it? When are we going to come oh, yeah. together and clean up what we Do you want to talk about it? Do would you rather forget? I still want to talk about
1: it. Hello, I am Patricia McLean, President and Founder of Finding Our Voices. And this is Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. Conversations with survivors of domestic abuse. In this Domestic Abuse Awareness Month episode, we are talking about the effect of domestic abuse on the family and particularly the children.
2: I always told myself that what boundary will make it so would be a good enough reason to break a family up? And my personal one was if. He ever laid his hands on me in front of the children. When
3: I woke up, I went to check on them after I cleaned myself up some, because I knew I was a mess and I was scared to death that they weren't even there. But if they were, I was afraid of what
1: I was going to look like to them. First is Natasha who learned of us through a colleague at work, Amber, who is on our posters. Natasha is a case manager for children with disabilities and also for parents involved in substance abuse. Welcome, Natasha.
2: I was a 19, almost 20-year-old back in 2004. Met as I was a college student working my way through college, and he worked at a gas station pumping gas. I had my own place. He moved in very quickly within a month. You know, it started with a lot of emotional abuse to physical and sexual and financial. We had two children together in that span of time. And when the kids were younger, I thought about leaving and I didn't. I was scared. And I was scared that he wasn't able to care for the children them being toddlers, I always told myself that what boundary will make it so would be a good enough reason to break a family up. And my personal one was if he ever laid his hands on me in front of the children. And so when that occurred, I was able to then not really leave willfully. It was very hastily, 2.30 in the morning, my mom and my sister had to come. How long had you been together? We were together 13 years. Like he would get angry and he would blame it on I was, I drank. And I don't remember what I did. Then that it quickly went to him putting his hands around my neck and strangling me while he was drinking. He very strategically, slowly um, kind of groomed me because even when we were first dating, he came off as a kind of overly great guy. And then our second date was, I'm the broken boy and you, you probably don't want to be with me. And like I said, now looking back, I realized, whoa, (laughs) no, those were really, you know, classic signs to kind
1: of um, set that relationship up. And manipulating you, right? Your, your nurturing instinct, did that come out?
2: It was more or less the feeling of just because he's been through things, I also didn't have an easy childhood. That for me, I didn't feel like that should be a reason not to try a relationship with someone.
1: And also, he was working at a gas station and you were in college. So how did he make you feel inferior? Oh, let's
2: see. Well, because I was working full-time and in college full-time supporting myself, he would make me feel inferior in terms of not having things done around the house, not having it maybe tidy or having a meal. I was living by myself and I was not home much. So I didn't have much food in my, ho- in my house. Then he quickly within I would say three months of us being together. He brought a dog home. So now we have a dog, you know, and kind of quickly getting into that feeling comfortable living together, residing together, building that relationship very quickly.
1: Was it hard for you? Was he, was he not supportive of you being in school and continuing your education and also working your, your career up? Was he unsupportive of that? And did he try to get in the way of those things? work, he didn't. There were times that school,
2: like, oh, well, you don't have to do that right now. Or, you know, like schoolwork and that sort of thing. But at that time, I was still kind of a spitfire. This has been my goal. I've worked so hard. And I'm not stopping now. Thankfully, I met him when I was almost 20. So I didn't have as much college left as if I would have just been you know 18 and so in those first couple years i i I think i felt like i still kind of had that edge of i'm gonna stand up to myself and i'm not gonna you know but it slowly you don't even realize it slowly slowly goes away how would you describe your personality toward the end of the relationship i was an empty shell i was not a person i didn't care about myself i went through the motions of life i got up i took i was a primary caregiver of our children i took them to daycare went to work came home brought extra work home even when i didn't need to to avoid i would be doing that cooking supper getting everything ready i would do everything depressed not not myself at all not even one remote characteristic of really who I, who I am as a person.
1: I think it's important to point out that I know for me, I wasn't the mother that I, could, I should have been and could have been because I was always managing his moods. And what would you say about how it affected you as a mother to be in that relationship, especially toward the end?
2: I developed a lot of what I actually at the time thought was I, like, I have OCD. But it wasn't. It was a response from that trauma. And so I feel because everything needed to be perfect. And my kids were, you know, even when they were infants and toddlers and, you know, young kids, I was spending more time cleaning, making sure everything is done instead of enjoying them. And I felt kids feed off that my anxiety was through the roof. And so I imagine that that affected and they felt that as well.
1: What kind of father was he from the beginning?
2: He was a standoff kind of, I was their caregiver. He didn't get up with them at night. He didn't feed them. He didn't, you know, when I worked, because I actually worked two jobs, two full-time jobs until I had my son then went back and worked full-time and part-time. But my part-time job was the weekends and my mom would end up being there with him. He did some of the fun things of, you know, taking pictures or he would say, oh, let's here, give him a scoop of ice cream or something like that. But he didn't financially contribute in terms of, he didn't contribute to groceries, which then that's when, the diapers and everything else is it wasn't expected of him in his mind to be expected to pay for a daycare. He didn't pay for that cost. And as they got older from, you know, even as small as a toddler, he was very open with the fact of kids need to fear their, their parent, or they won't listen to you. So there was from a very young
1: age, abortion control. Did you see him do things to the kids that you thought were very harmful parenting? Yes.
2: Yelling, screaming, physically intimidating, getting up off the couch to run after them. I had to step in, I was their buffer.
1: But even being, af- were you afraid to be the buffer? Sometimes you thought that might make it worse. I knew it would be worse for me after the kids went to
2: bed. But because he didn't really have much access or time alone with the kids, I didn't think at that point in time when we were together that it was going
1: to have a negative outcome for them. Yeah, isn't it true that we think that we're keeping them safe, right? That we think that through our intervention that we're making things okay and, and the fact that the blow-ups and the rampages are happening when they're in bed, that, that, that they're not hearing. Is, isn't that true?
2: I, I thought that. My kids knew a lot more than what I thought they knew.
1: So when you said you were afraid to leave, part of it you said were you were afraid to leave when they were toddlers because you were afraid of him having access to them on his own. Is that right? Yes. And ha- how were your fears around him as a parent born out when you did leave? What was it, what was that like?
2: My fears were that there was no one there to stop him from physically being aggressive with the children when his temper and he got angry. You know, he would. I had to intervene when he went to spank our son when he was three years old and it was going to be the third spank on the butt and it was really hard and I was like, enough, enough. And so I feared that it was going to be increased for them in terms of they were going to get more of the wrath, and there wasn't going to be someone there to kind of
1: protect them. I'd like to talk about how, yes, you know, Finding Our Voices does say, you know, encourage support women in getting out and staying safe and all that. But with post-separation abuse, I know with me, like I think the hardest time for me and Probably for my kids, maybe was after I left. and so let's talk about that. like what what happened when you left with the kids especially? So um,
2: it was traumatic because they were six and eight and they had known only our family dynamic. And when I left, there was a PFA that was in place. And so they ended up not having contact with their dad for 20 days. And I remember as we were staying at my sister's for safety purposes, because my brother-in-law was there laying in bed, which was actually a queen size blow up mattress between my kids and them crying and saying, well, I can't, We see or talk to dad. And all that I could say is that we're trying to figure that out. And I'm sorry that you can't talk to him and crying right beside them because I hurt. I felt really bad because um, it made me feel like I split the family up.
1: Were they angry at you? And do you think there still is some residual anger for you leaving and, and, you know,
2: I think at first they did because they also had the combination of when they were able to then spend time with their dad, their dad was very open to, um, saying things that were very negative towards me. They knew a lot more that, that were, I, I frame it as kid stuff versus adult stuff. There's no filter there. And it still is that way. How long ago is it that you've been out? Since 2017, so five years, I didn't have time to gather and to even begin to start healing, let alone function. And I was still in survival mode and I was still in the, oh, okay. Yes. Don't make him angry. So he was able to obtain shared rights and
1: responsibilities and 50, 50 custody of the children. I can really relate to that because I had to make really important decisions, including, you know, dropping the PFA because of pressure from him and settlement decisions and where, you know, I'm going to live and, and, and settlement and divorce settlement things went exactly right. Like I was still completely in survival mode and afraid for my life and still to some extent, maybe blaming myself and feeling sorry for him. And those, those are life. These are decisions that affect your whole life and you have to make them when you are still like, and the other person's totally in control because they've always been that way, but it's just, it's just wrong.
2: Yeah. You're not, you're not able to effectively advocate for your needs or rights for yourself or your child. They approved a PFA just for me, not the kids for a year during that time we had sporting events you know, there was football and that sort of thing. And he would purposely park beside me or if I was standing on the sidelines.
1: But he's, he not, would, he's not allowed to. I took pictures and still nothing. And tell me about that, because I think we need to talk about that. A we need to talk about that. He violated his protection from abuse order and you had pictures. And who did you tell and what, was, what happened?
2: I think I, at that time, provided him to my lawyer and I don't think anything came of it. And I, I believe I also had talked to a couple of police officers as well. Did you get the feeling that just people just didn't care? Well, he wasn't really doing anything. That's what they said. Yeah. Well, was he, you know, threatening? Did he say anything to
1: you? But isn't the protection from abuse sort of giving a distance that he's got to stay away from you? Yes. So he's violating it. Yes. And it, the
2: feeling is, is if he wasn't actually, if he was just in the wrong, you know, proximity, it might've been a mistake and, and he wasn't threatening you or doing or talking to you. So
1: that's ridiculous. And that doesn't even make sense. What's the point? If there's things that he can't do and he does them, it just emboldens and empowers. It just lets him know that, that it doesn't matter that, you know, no one's going to be holding him accountable. It's ridiculous. It
2: reinforces the behavior. And he has a long history of his childhood. That's how he got what he wanted. He was a bully. And that's been so reinforced and it just continues. So you go on what has what works for you. We have it in our original rights and responsibilities order that either neither parent is supposed to be making discouraging comments towards the others to the children.
1: So so there you go. So did you try, did you attempt to have him held accountable for that?
2: Yes, and that it was pretty much, well, that's one thing that a judge isn't going to do anything about it. So you're going to spend a lot of money for nothing. And I had already spent, went in debt about $10,000 in the early morning that I left because our son wasn't present that night. He was actually staying at my mom's for that night. My daughter's the one that witnessed things. And so he says to our son and our, my son has asked me, and had asked me at that time. Dad said that you were grabbing your arms to make marks on purpose. Is that
1: true? Every time he doesn't do something, do you need to engage a lawyer and pay for a lawyer or and, and put him up for contempt? Or what, what do you do every time he just doesn't do these things? I consult
2: I started consulting. You know, I
1: consulted the
2: lawyer that I had originally had, but at the grand scheme of things, they said you can, but there's not much even with contempt that they're going to do anything. It's a slap on the hand and it's hit or miss and you're going to be out more money. So it was, it was discouraging. And then it was also, especially the first part of it, still petrified of his reaction. What I can have in my means. I had been able to save 12,000. But now we've been in court for almost a year. And so the 12000 that I was hoping to have for a down payment of something that, you know, a home is dwindled to 4000 And what is the money going for? Lawyer fees, the court fees, and I half of guardian at litem payment. Has the guardian ad litem been helpful to you? She was very, very biased, not neutral, to the degree of saying that his parenting style is laid back and where mine is rule-based. I took the same structure as our home had always been in terms of expectations and things like that and continue that with the kids consciously because they already had enough changes. I transported them from, you know, living outside of the school district that they were used to being in. I transported them, had a superintendent's agreement, so they didn't Switch schools I kept as much as I could the same for them
1: and that was used against me and so then when you ended up and and also would you, would you say that the guardian ad litem didn't understand the domestic abuse no she didn't she didn't want to hear it and tell me what you think would happen if you didn't have money for a lawyer as many domestic violence victims don't because of the financial abuse what, what do you think would, would be your situation
2: I know that I couldn't go and advocate and fight for, to protect my children without a lawyer. I know he lawyers up every time and in the system that it and how it is currently presented, you go in there without a lawyer
1: and they have a lawyer,
2: you're done. It's
1: considered a viable option for a domestic violence victim to represent itself. I don't consider that a viable option.
2: It's not realistic No, that setting someone up to fail, that is also setting them up to be re-traumatized, re-victimized over and over again and continue that abuse and the consequences of leaving. And, and it gives them a higher chance of saying, screw it. I can't do this. I give up. I better just go back, especially when it has to do with kids.
1: And I've seen how these lawyers on the opposing lawyer operate. They get into your head. Like my ex's lawyer got into my head, right? By like saying things or phrasing things a certain way or, you know, to the court, whatever. It makes you doubt yourself. And they're very, they're very sharp and savvy. Like how a lay person cannot expect to go up against, you know, a lawyer. Well, not even that. But then there's also like in my current case.
2: It's complicated because it started with he filed contempt of court against me. And so I'm defending my contempt and I had to file rights relooking at rights and responsibilities. But to defend my contempt, I wouldn't and I have to work full- time. I don't have time to research, get the forms and fill them out correctly for, requesting his medical records to prove why the kids were unsafe with
1: him. And that's the other thing. When you come out of a domestic violence situation, you're rebuilding your life and you're trying to get back on your feet. And that is all consuming. You don't have time, as you said, to do all these legal maneuvers. And you don't have time to not work. Right. I had to work full time through all of it. And now talk to me, if you want, about the substance abuse and the detox and how that plays into your situation.
2: Since March of 2021, he has um, spiraled, resulting in grand mal seizures in front of the children.
1: It just seems obvious that his substance abuse is endangering the children and you're aware of that but do you feel powerless about that
2: yes because i have also in our original court order from five years ago i didn't want him to drink when he had the kids because i i i know i've had in the past when we were together had to threaten that i would call the cops if he took off with the kids after
1: drinking well, that's totally reasonable so why aren't you able to implement, have that implemented it, it
2: is in there. And I had to agree that I wouldn't. Well, if I can't, then she
1: can't. Right. So for
2: five years, if I have my kids, I do not have any alcohol period. I don't have an issue with alcohol, Yeah, but it's a hard thing to prove and to man. And I didn't realize that. So I have no proof to show the court that
1: he continues to drink even with them. Have you had any like thing on Facebook where you should shows that he's in the, have you had any evidence or even like your kids telling you anything or the kids suspect it? And I documented things
2: like that, but there, it's not concrete enough.
1: And Natasha, can you tell me from your experience what you feel needs to be changed in the system with domestic violence and family court, just everything to do with domestic violence and also with family court from your experience?
2: Well, there needs to be more training for every professional. Lawyers, judges, guardian ad litem. all of it are un, I wouldn't say, I guess not, not using the utmost and most recent evidence-based practices when determining what is best for a child. And also how to handle a case that involves domestic violence. So instead, they just expect it to be handled the same way as any other case. And if it's not, then you're being difficult. You're shamed because your case is labeled high conflict. Along with the simple fact that the systems that they're using for children that judges, that garnet items it's like on a whim, like, oh, what that individual feels might be the best in that situation. They're not using this research, evidence-based. If you're in schools, it, there's a huge push for trauma-informed services in school, outside, outpatient, you know, services. And they surround talking about trauma as a trigger. It's You know, trauma is one of the number one triggers of substance use disorder. There is like evidence-based that they've done studies about adverse childhood effects. And when you have a emotional abuse, domestic violence in the home, incarceration, those are all adverse childhood effects. And they're not using any of those evidence-based practices. They also do not. Except even in a two adult court that has to do with domestic violence, they don't want to hear and they don't consider emotional abuse.
1: Well, they don't even consider it child abuse if there's physical abuse of the mother and the children are witnessing it. That's child abuse, but they don't consider that child abuse to the court has to be right. The father, like literally like physically hurting the child.
2: Yes. Because even in, Family court systems, they do not want to hear of coercion control, emotional abuse of the children, because there's not any evidence. But the thing is, the reality, emotional abuse has the most long-term effects. Of course. And it affects their growing brains.
1: And that, that, that comes back to education and training, right? Yes. And Natasha, is there anything else that you'd like to say for people out there who either don't know anything about this or have gone through it? or
2: I think another important thing is just to say that I, I think a lot of people that when you are trying to fight to protect your kids, you get kind of dismissed, especially in the, in the family court system because you're a survivor of domestic violence and they feel this is a ploy
1: my first lawyer, who, who was horrible, Gene Libby from Biddeford, and knew nothing about domestic violence. But when I interviewed him, I asked him if he did. He said yes. And I don't know why. I just, on face value, just because he said yes, I believed it. But I dropped the PFA, the Protection from Abuse Order, under pressure from my ex. And then I wanted to get it back because I needed it. And my own lawyer said to me, well, you know, judges don't like when you play the system. Mm-hmm my own lawyer told me that yep i have been
2: told that i even in terms of well we can't say something like this we have to reword it for the for the courts but the thing is is that the survivors that are out there fighting to protect their children in the family court systems it i can guarantee i live it it has nothing to do with revenge on that abuser it solely has to do with looking and putting their children first and the children are silent my children are they have tape over their their mouths talk about that okay so they have tape over their mouths from their dad they can't advocate or truly express themselves to their father they are deathly afraid of him true there are consequences and they are specifically talked Two. You shut up. You don't tell your mom anything. You don't, and now just as recently, you don't reach out to your mom when you're on my time. When something, if you need, if you are hurt or something happened to you at school, you talk to us. That wasn't just my ex. That was his parents. Three grown adults sitting down with a preteen and a teenager. That's grooming and that's taping their mouth.
1: Thank you, Natasha. You are listening to Let's Talk About It, and I am Patricia McLean, your host and president-founder of Finding Our Voices, which is breaking the silence of domestic abuse boldly and creatively in all kinds of ways around the state, including this WERU-FM radio program that airs second Friday of every month, 4 p.m. The linchpin for domestic abuse awareness for our nonprofit is posters that you may have seen in business windows around the state that feature the portraits of 44 main survivors of domestic abuse aged 18 to 81, including an incarcerated woman, myself, my daughter, and our governor. It was stopping in at a general store in Searsmont about displaying one of these posters that connected me to our next guest, Gail. Gail was busy at the cash register when I briefly explained our project and my mission. And she said, wait right here. And when she rang through the last customer in the line, we talked about it. Welcome, Gail.
3: Well, when you brought the poster in, it was kind of, I've been looking for something to be able to help um, be there for other people because to me, that's empowering for me to let people know that they're not alone because that was one thing that I felt like I had nobody to talk to anytime that, because for the longest time I didn't say anything to anyone. If anybody thought something was going on and they, you know, asked me, you know, what happened? I denied it. I lied. I made up stories because if I did kind of let on something was going on, their comment was, why don't you leave? And they didn't understand. It's not as easy as that. He threatened me with not being able to have the kids, that he'd keep the kids from me and my kids were everything. So he told me that he would tell the courts that he would tell everybody that I was crazy
1: and that I'd never see the kids again. And that happens that, that happens in Maine. Maine, It happens everywhere, but there are women that I am talking to who that's exactly what's playing out. Yep. So let's start maybe from the kind of the beginning, if we can. Yeah. Could you tell me where you were in your life when you met this individual and how you met and your first depression and that kind of thing?
3: I was in high school and I was in my senior year. Were there some red flags early on and what were they? If we ever were goofing around, he'd have to one up whatever I did. So I ended up was just playing and I splashed him with the bird bath at my mother's house and that ticked him off. So he took the hose and had to soak me with it. So it wasn't just, you know, a playful thing. It was, he had
1: to top it. But can I, But my interpretation of that is, and just from my ex's behavior, is I think it's a lot about respect. Like respect is so important to these people and being respected. And do you think that's part of it too? Probably. And also in charge.
3: He joined the service and didn't like the service and kept trying to get out. And at that time, it was very hard to get out of the service. So they weren't letting him out. So he ended up saying, fine, we'll get married. Because then he could have me at least over there. So then he'd have somebody with him. That's the reason why we got married.
1: And then how did it, what was the things that started happening that were not good?
3: He'd get angry very easy. Um, the first time that he actually physically hit me, um, I was pregnant. I was about eight months pregnant. And we were at a gathering with his platoon and it was getting kind of late. It was at their, um, one of the guy's apartments and stuff. And I wanted to go home. I mean, I was pretty big pregnant and he said that we'd go home in a while, but that I was embarrassing him. So a couple more hours went by And I went and I asked him again. And I reminded him that he had said that we could go home and that I was really getting tired. And he ended up, he slapped me right there in front of everybody, in front of everybody, shoved me backwards with the stairs right behind me. And one of the guys went and grabbed him and told him to chill out, you know, whoa, hang on all this kind of stuff. And I was crying. They ended up getting him kind of pulled away, trying to get him to calm down and stuff like that. He's telling me, don't ever embarrass him in front of his buddies like that again. And he ended up storming off. He said, if I wanted to go home, I could walk. He ended up walking off out of the the apartment and stuff like that and walked off through the complex. And they were asking me if I was okay and stuff like that. And I was just worried about him. So I ended up, I went after him and followed after and ended up getting him to go home, but he was drunk and, um, and I drove us home and stuff and he ended up passing out in the bed and I slept on the floor and he woke up in the morning, apologizing for his behavior and promised it would never happen again. And of course it happened again. And over time, just, it got worse and worse. So it would end up being that I didn't clean the house good enough. So I'd get hit for that. If I backtalked, I'd get hit for that.
1: And when you say hit, what do you, what do you slap you or what do you do?
3: At first it was just slaps either, you know, with the inside of his hand or backhand, but eventually it got to the point where it was, he punched me. He broke my nose three times
1: when you, when he broke your nose, did you go to the hospital?
3: No, my nose is crooked. Um, one side is almost the airway is totally blocked off. So, um, when I end up, I get a sinus infection or anything. I can't breathe out of one side
1: at all. That's a reminder of that relationship, isn't it?
3: I just, I turn around and make up stories I made up a story saying I slipped on the floor and hit the doorknob. One of the times that he broke it, I had two black eyes and a bruise right across the bridge of my nose. And that story that I gave, which was the lamest story in the world, I said that I was hanging up curtains and I knocked the rod off the wall and the rod hit me across the bridge of the nose. And it must have been the weight of the rod or whatever. It hit just right. and must have broke my nose.
1: And who did you give that story to? Do you remember? Yeah, a co-worker. And uh, where were you working?
3: I was working at a car dealership.
1: And do you think that they suspected anything?
3: I'm sure they did.
1: Do you wish that, do you think it would have made a difference if they had questioned you more?
3: Um, possibly. There was one co-worker there. That was a retired state trooper. And, um, and I did talk to him because he did pull me aside and he did tell me that I could file a restraining order. Oh, so he just,
1: he just assumed that it was domestic abuse.
3: Yep. And he said that it would do one of two things that it would either keep him at bay and keep him away, or it could send him over the edge and he would take it too far. And with some of the things that he would do and how he always had to one up everything, I was afraid that if I did something like that, he would go too far. So I never, you know, filed anything. I never told
1: anything. But, but also Um, did you ever worry that he was going to kill you? He tried. So going, going too far in that way. So when you say he tried, what do you mean? After we were separated. And tell me about how that happened that you separated.
3: We were, it had gotten to a point where I was almost provoking him to get angry with me over stuff, almost trying to, I guess, make me strong enough to walk away, hmm. to jeopardize the relationship enough so that I could convince myself that I'd had enough and I was ready to go. My brother was up and he lived in another state and him and his friend were here and it was his last night here. And him and his friend, and he's four years older than me and my mother were all gonna go out and I wanted to go. And he said that he forbid me to go. And I was like, you forbid me to go out with my mother and my brother? And it's like, what am I, a child? And he said that I was not allowed to go. And I was like, no, I'm going. So when I came home, he wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't talk to me the next day. And I didn't come home at an unreasonable time either. So when he refused to like talk to me or anything like that, I was like, you know, this is getting ridiculous. So that was like, to me, that was like the final straw and I told him I was done. And I ended up, I, I asked him to leave. How long and, had
1: you been together for at this point?
3: 11 years.
1: <gasps> Did you have children? We had two. Yeah. Yeah. So you asked him to leave. Okay. And then what happened?
3: And he actually, he left and he would break down crying a lot. And I think he thought that I would take him back. And I didn't see anybody or anything like that. But this one day that he like snapped, he came by where we lived. He moved in with his father and we were in a trailer park and he would come back and forth by where I was living. And I had somebody from work come over, just a kid. And the kid was just over to watch a movie with me and my kids And he went and had seen this kid there and came over the next day and wanted to know who this guy was that was at the house. It was literally nobody but a friend. So then he kept going on and on questioning me about who this person was and everything else. And I ended up getting to the point where I knew it was going to make him mad. And I was like, you know what? I said that's fine. I said he's just a kid. I said, but he's more of a man than you'll ever be. He threw me through a closet door and threw a kitchen chair and ended up beating the out of me and um, ended up getting on top of me and was choking me and choked me until everything went black. And our kids were there and. What scares me the most and what ended up bringing everything to a realization for me that I wasn't protecting the kids like I thought I was, was this was only a small trailer. It was a 10 by 50 mobile home. And the kids were at the other end watching TV. And they had to have heard all of this because I was a bloody pulp and When I woke up, I went to check on them after I cleaned myself up some because I knew I was a mess and I was scared to death that they weren't even there. But if they were, I was afraid of what I was going to look like to them. So I cleaned up some and then opened the door to see them. And they were sitting there like nothing, just watching cartoons. And I went and Didn't say anything to them, but I had two black eyes, bruises around my neck from where he had choked me out. And I know he thought he had to, he had to have thought he had killed me because of how bloody that I was and how he had laid me out on the floor. He had to have thought I was done and he just left and um so that's where i say that he tried to kill me once and um so that was just it i swore up and down he'd never lay a hand on me again and that was the last time he did i didn't say anything to anybody about that one but i did take him to court about a year after that for abusing the kids
1: So how did that happen? Did you end up getting a divorce or were you divorced at this point? We were separated
3: when he did that. And we did get divorced. And then after we got divorced, I moved and I got a different trailer so that I was away from him. And he started abusing the kids.
1: Did you have, did he have visitation or who had custody?
3: I had primary custody of the kids. Every Wednesday, he had them after school until the evening. And then every other weekend, he had them for an overnight. And then when he didn't have them for an overnight, he had them just Sunday. So, and honestly, the reason why he had them Sunday was they couldn't interfere with his hunting.
1: Were you worried about the kids being with him?
3: I did, but there was nothing I could do. When he started abusing them, He was mentally abusing one of them, but the other one, he started physically abusing.
1: How did you learn of this? And what is the first that you heard of it? When they came
3: home one day after a visit, the younger one that he was physically abusing was white as a sheet. And I asked what was wrong and he didn't say anything. He was six. And I asked his sister, I said, what is the matter? And she was nine. And she ended up telling me that her dad had spanked him. And She said that her brother had wet his pants on the way home. And I was like, okay. So then I went and I sat down with her brother and I asked him what happened. And he said that he kept telling his dad he had to go to the bathroom. And his dad kept telling him, just hold it, just hold it. When he ended up telling him, he goes, I can't hold it anymore. And he pulled over and found out he had wet his pants. He spanked him so hard that his feet were coming off of the ground. And it's like, okay, so that's abuse. So I went and I filed a protection order on behalf of the kids. And when I took it to court, I ended up, we... I didn't get an attorney. He did. And why, why didn't you get an attorney? Because I couldn't afford one. We had to go into a room with a mediator and discuss you know, what we wanted. And he wanted to argue what he could and couldn't do to the kids. And I ended up, I, I told him that you know, he can't hit the kids. He can't do this stuff. And they were saying different things. And I ended up, I told him to shut up in the mediator's office. And, um, and then his attorney started saying stuff, sticking up for like him saying that I can't say these things. And I'm like, you know what? I said, you can shut up too. And it's like, I had found my voice and I ended up finding out later after that part was all done that my mother And the woman's abuse advocate were outside the door, like cheering me on and like, yes, and all this kind of stuff, because they were listening and they were so glad that I was telling them to shut up. And I was angry, but I wasn't like yelling at anybody, but I was like, no, you're not going to do this to my kids. And I ended up winning. He still had visitation, but he had supervised visits. Nice. Nice. And they went with my supervised person. The judge ended up telling him that he couldn't spank the kids. I still never said anything about what happened to me, but
1: I voiced for them. And now we come to one of my closest friends and colleagues in Finding Our Voices. Mary Lou was a first grade teacher. Her husband was a University of Maine professor. They did a lot of entertaining in their beautiful homes and were active in their church. Nobody knew, she says, about the terrorizing of her and their four children by her husband, Charlie, for more than 40 years. Here, Mary Lou will read four of her poems that document her growing awareness of the domestic abuse she and her children were trapped in, starting when she didn't know domestic abuse even had a name. Welcome, Mary Lou.
4: Hello, I'm Mary Lou Smith. I'm 82 years old and I come from Scarborough, Maine. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I left my abusive marriage at the age of 65 um, after a 43-year marriage. I wrote this poem, It, on June 24, 2005, two months before I left my husband. And I remember the setting. I, 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 my grandkids had, were staying with us. And and during their rest time, I had my rest time and, and something must have happened during their visit that they weren't aware of that I was, that I sat down and wrote this, this, what were my feelings, what was going on? And I didn't have a name to it. I didn't know it was domestic violence. So I wrote in my journal, it, it, it sits in my stomach, it aches in my heart, it encompasses my being. It chokes at my soul. It kills my spirit. It eats at my thoughts. It puts a cloud all around me. It swallows my self-esteem. It is ugly. It is cold. It is angry. It is empty. It is controlling. It is powerful. It is painful. It is sad. 13 days later, I'm not sure what the setting was, but I know I must have been alone. And I got to my journal and I wrote, it is happening again. It is happening again. What is it? It is silent, withdrawal, after a day of verbal abuse and anger. Why do I stay? Why do I stay here? The million dollar question, fear, insecurity, habit, low self-esteem, I don't enjoy it. I don't get treated by anyone else I've encountered this way. I allow myself to be put down and humiliated. I feel trapped and stuck when it happens. How do I begin to open the door to self-worth and to be free of fear? My next poem happened in November. So I left my ex on August 21st, 2005. And I went to visit my son for a couple of weeks and I ended up staying there for a year. And I met this wonderful priest, Father Michael Carroll. And he said to me, Mary Lou, you're a slave with no rights or privileges. And after I left our visit together, I came home and wrote this poem, Slave Girl. Slave Girl is a blunt and honest description of my life. Submissive, subservient, and silent in that house. I had no rights or privileges in that house. I walked on eggshells in that house. I lived in fear in that house. Charlie's moods were the barometer of our daily existence. The power and control he held over us was staggering. I truly felt it was my fault. If I watched what I said or did, it wouldn't happen again. I died inside that house. The next poem happened a few years after I left and came back to Maine, but I entitled it, You Never Took the Time to Know Me. You never took the time to know me. You never took the time to listen to my dreams. You never took the time to understand what was in my heart. You never took the time to feel my love for you. You were so self-absorbed and self-centered. You couldn't understand what you did to me. You didn't see me slowly die before you. You saw it in the end and offered me a gun. You are no longer a part of my life. You're only a painful memory of my past. Your power and control have lost their fire. Your empty words and promises have gone up in thin air. You never took the time to know me. You never took the time to listen to my dreams. You never took the time to understand what was in my heart. You never took the time to feel my love for you. I wrote this poem when my ex-husband asked one of my children to tell your mother that I forgive her. I wrote it on May 4th, 2008 about two and a half years after I had left my ex. Tell your mother I forgive her. Tell her I forgive her for allowing me to abuse her. Tell her I forgive her for allowing me to abuse my children. Tell her I forgive her for accepting my shit and never saying a word. Tell your mother I forgive her. You just don't get it. You're oblivious to all the pain and suffering you caused. You sit on your throne, superior to all around you. You will always be right, and everyone else is stupid and ignorant. Tell your mother I forgive her. I have forgiven myself, Charlie. I don't need your idle and meaningless words. I am free of you and your control. I am at
1: peace. You can see and hear Mary Lou and me and three other local survivors Tuesday, October 18th at a Finding Our Voices panel discussion at the Scarborough Public Library, starting at 6 p.m. And there is one more week to take in the Finding Our Voices multimedia exhibit at the University of Maine's Hutchinson Center in Belfast. So get over there if you can to see my photo portraits and their documentation of the abuse from 44 Maine survivors, Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. through Friday, October 21st. For more about that, and other Finding Our Voices survivor-powered events this month. Check us out at findingourvoices.net. Any questions or comments from me and my guests on this show, feel free to get in touch through our website or at hello at findingourvoices.net. Thank you, as always, to my daughter, Jackie, for the music that starts and ends this show. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself. And remember, love should feel good.